Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. Welcome to KPFK's Morning Mix Radio Magazine. Coming up is Voices from the Frontlines with Eric Mann. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead. Everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines. This is Eric Mann, waking up with my big cup of coffee and trying to wake you up. You know, I listen to a show called Good Morning Football. Now, these people must be wired because they got to get up at whatever to be on a 5 a.m. show in New York. So they always start out with, last night at 6 o'clock, let me tell you, he was running, he hit that man. So I don't talk like that, but I am going to try to wake you up. Uh, and we say, wake up and smell the revolution. So, when I walked in today, Gary Baca was very nice to say, are you going to sing today? So, apparently, we've made that part of the show, and the answer is sure. But the most important part of the show today, and we're going to get to the news headlines in a minute, is an amazing conversation with Hollis Watkins, who is a leader, was a leader and is a leader in Mississippi, lived his whole life in Mississippi, in 2014, on the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer, 1964, uh, I went to Alan Minsky, the program director, and said, I want to go down to Mississippi and do a set of interviews for KPFK. And he said, sure, here's five cents, good luck. And we went, and I went with uh, Julian Lamb. When we got there, we met with uh, two amazing filmmakers, William Sabarine and uh, Catherine Murphy. So you're going to hear just a truly historic conversation between Hollis Watkins and myself. I will frame it even more when we get there. Then, as you can tell, this time we're going to combine the singing and dancing with Madonna's uh, Like a Prayer. And then I want to go to the phones and say, hi, I'm live in studio, and I'd love to hear some of the 8 a.m. listeners who are going to help us build the show. So with that, Gary, if you could please play the news headlines, I would really appreciate it. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The 118th United States Congress officially begins today with lawmakers taking their oaths of office amidst a leadership fight in the House of Representatives. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is the front runner to be elected Speaker of the House, but appears short of the 218 votes needed to clinch a victory in the first round of voting. That's despite a major concession McCarthy made to 
far-right Republicans over the weekend when he agreed to a rule that would allow a snap election at any time to oust him from the role of House Speaker. Among Congress members to be, to be sworn in today is Republican George Santos of New York, who's facing mounting outrage and a number of investigations after he admitted he lied about his work, his education, his family history on his resume and campaign platform. Federal and state investigations have been launched against Santos. Meanwhile, Brazilian authorities also announced this week they're planning to revive fraud charges against Santos, stemming from a 2008 incident in which Santos reportedly used a stolen checkbook and false name to make a $700 purchase in Rio de Janeiro. The criminal charges were approved by a Brazilian judge in 2011, but by then Santos was already living in New York. He reportedly confessed to the fraud while still in Brazil, but has recently denied having committed any crimes. In Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has been sworn in to a third term as president. Lula spoke to hundreds of thousands of supporters in the capital of Brasilia Sunday, pledging to fight poverty, invest in education and health, and halt illegal logging in the Amazon rainforest. In the fight for the good of Brazil, we will use the weapons that our adversaries fear the most, the truth that prevails over the lies, the hope that conquers fear, and the love that defeats hatred. Long live Brazil, and long live the Brazilian people. The far-right former president Jair Bolsonaro boycotted Sunday's ceremony, leaving Brazil Friday, flying to Orlando, Florida, after first refusing to concede the election to Lula. We'll have more on Lula's historic third presidential term after headlines. The World Health Organization has once again called on China to share real-time data on China's massive surge in coronavirus cases amidst dire predictions that China could face over a million COVID deaths this year. The World Health Organization is seeking information on hospitalizations, infections, deaths, and wants genetic sequencing data that could help identify the emergence of dangerous new coronavirus variants. In a New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping defended his government's handling of the pandemic while acknowledging the former zero-COVID policy had taken a toll on China. After arduous efforts, we've overcome unprecedented difficulties and challenges, which were not easy for everyone. At present, the epidemic prevention and control is entering a new phase. It is still a time of struggle. Everyone is persevering and working hard, and the dawn lies ahead. In Europe, a massive heat dome has brought unseasonably warm winter weather that shattered records in at least seven countries. Weekend temperatures soared by as much as 36 degrees Fahrenheit above normal over a vast region stretching from France to western Russia. This comes after Europe logged its warmest year on record in 2022. Palestinians have condemned a visit by Israel's newly installed national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem. It was Ben-Gavir's first public act since he was sworn in last week to the most far-right government in Israel's history. He was previously convicted of racist incitement against Arabs and supporting a terrorist group. The Palestinian foreign ministry called his visit to Al-Aqsa under heavy security and unprecedented provocation. 
occupation. And a spokesperson for Hamas said it would lead to more conflict. It is clear that the members of the current government are more extreme than any previous one. Neither the U.S., nor the international community, nor the regional powers can stop the extremists of this government. Therefore, if this behavior continues, it will bring us all to a big conflict and a real battle on the ground. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed two Palestinians and wounded three others in a raid on a village outside Janine overnight Sunday. The killings came as Israel's army worked to demolish the family homes of two Palestinians who were killed in a shootout in September. This is Hani Abed, whose home was demolished. They made two families homeless. They were vengeful. And this is collective punishment. If they could, they would demolish the entire area. The policy that the occupation implements will definitely not bring the result they are expecting. They will not break our spirit. On the contrary, this will make people more determined and steadfast, God willing. Iran's top woman chess player has fled to Spain after receiving threats not to return to Iran for competing at an international tournament in Kazakhstan without a hijab. Iranian law requires women to wear a headscarf in public, even when visiting other countries. Sarasadat Khadamal Sharia's decision was seen as a gesture in solidarity with anti-government protests that erupted in Iran in September in response to the death of Masamini in the custody of Iranian so-called morality police. In related news, several Iranian soccer players were arrested after attending a New Year's Eve party with women and where alcohol was served. The players were current and former members of one of Tehran's prominent soccer clubs. A local media outlet said many of the detained soccer players had also expressed support for the mass protests. Ukraine's military says 400 Russian conscripts were killed and another 300 wounded in a massive New Year's Day missile strike in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region. In a rare admission of heavy battlefield losses, Russia's defense ministry acknowledged dozens of troops were killed but gave a much lower death toll. Well, that's the news. Uh, on, the, on the positive note, uh, the course, the election of Lula in Brazil, you got to pay attention because there's so much reaction in the world, so many counter-revolutions. The fact that Ignacio Lula was able to, Ignacio, was able to go to prison for his beliefs instead of fl fleeing the country was, was uh, fortunately freed on a uh, legal mistake that the government made and then turns right back and defeats a fascist Bolsonaro. When you're looking for things to feel positive about, uh, that's one of the best news headlines you'll hear in a, in a long, long time. On another note, uh, I don't know why somebody's ever set, uh, so upset about this guy, George Santos, uh, lying, cheating, stealing, writing bad checks. He's a member of Congress. I don't understand what the outrage is about. They're all doing it. Okay, so now let's move on to our world. Not that that's not part of the world. Uh, I want to go back to the role of history. You know, I was in the Congress of Racial Equality. And by the way, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. Wake up and smell the revolution. It's really essential, as I'm in studio now, uh, 
to know that you're out there. And for some new listeners who were used to hear us at three uh, or didn't hear us at three, uh, it's really important to send emails to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines because after I do the show, I go home and sometimes I get a lot of great emails like, you said that wrong or how come you didn't do that right? But at least it's an email. And sometimes it's that the show was great, but we need to know who's out there. For me to invest in this show, I need to know that there's listeners who care about it. So sign up on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and register. You'll get a weekly from Channing Martinez on what's happening. And send me emails about the show at Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Okay, so I'm working on a book called I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes. And the concept is that for those of you who are not there, and I'm talking about during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, up until the election of Reagan and Thatcher in 79, 80, there was a world revolution, an anti-colonial revolution, a pro-communist revolution, a black liberation movement that you can't even imagine, but we're going to try to help you imagine. So in 1964, I became a field secretary for the Congress of Racial Equality, who had uh, done the Freedom Rides, who had... Uh, uh, the Stalins, and who had had organizers in the South, in, in Mississippi, and uh, three core organizers, Mickey Schwerner, Andy Goodman, and James Cheney, James Cheney being black, and the other two brothers being Jewish. That became one of the great events of history in a certain way, like Emmett Till, that shaped a whole generation. Okay, so Hollis Watkins, who's a native Mississippian, is growing up, he's young, he's exactly my age, which back then was young, and he's going to tell his story on the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer, which was 2014. You got it? So this conversation that you're about to hear is in 2014. And Julian Lamb, with whom I went, stayed up all night to do the editing to get it to KPFK, which is why you need to support the station. So there'll be much more to say, except that Hollis Watkins was also the chair of the 50th anniversary, and there was 500 of us there. So in that case, listen to the brilliant Hollis Watkins. So hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on the Voices from the Frontlines. We're very excited to be able to talk to Hollis Watkins, who was the chair of the conference of the 50th commemoration of Mississippi Summer. What was the defining moment in your political development before Mississippi 64? I would say the defining moment in my history came when my father said to me, always remember, son, that you are just as much or as important as anybody else. And you should always stand up for the truth and that which is right, even if you're the only one standing. That's what gave rise to my looking at all of the things that was wrong, all of the things that needed to be changed and proved that said to me, you got a lot of work because you got to stand up against all of these different things that you see out here. And that's what gave rise to me wanting to find a way by which 
I could work on getting rid of all of the things that was unfair, all of the things that were unjust in an effort to try to create a fair and just society. Well, you know, on some level that seems so obvious superficially, and yet in the world of white supremacy, for a black father to say that to a black son was a revolutionary concept. Do you think so? I know it was revolutionary because to me, I knew my father was saying to me, you need to see all people as people, not prioritizing and having one group with priorities and another group not having that. So I'm knowing that was revolutionary because I also had the opportunity to experience where when you step outside the status quo, so to speak, or you get out of line, serious things happen. Saw things happening not only with black people, but also I saw a situation where it was a white man decided that he was going to change the pay scale for everybody that worked for him. Instead of paying them $3 per day, he was going to start paying them 75 cents per hour, and he was ostracized. What was the impact of Emmett Till on you? Emmett, How old were you with when it happened, if I could ask? Uh, I think I'm real close to Emmett Till's age. What? So am I, 1955. Okay. I was born at 41. We were born in the same year. I was born in that same year. And that shook me deeply even. That was one of the turning points in my life. So we're about the same age. We're 14, 15. Emmett is 15. What was the impact on you? It impacted me tremendously because it was one of those things where all of these things that you've heard about, you know, that you didn't exactly believe, now you know those things are real possibilities. And if it happened to him at that age, then there's a possibility that it might be happening to me. So I have to look at this thing in a different manner, rather than the children versus the older people. But this thing applies all across the board. So it created a little bit of fear, a little bit of ambivalence in me as to where I could be safe and where I perhaps had stepped across the line and even started trying to figure out how I'll make sure I didn't step across the line. But I realized that to do and be the kind of person my father had told me to be, I was going to have to step across the line. What was your introduction to SNCC? What role did you play in its formation? Where did you come in in its early stages? I came in to SNCC after SNCC was rolling. Okay. Uh, SNCC had been formed, uh, had participated in sit-in demonstrations and all of that. Came in to Mississippi through Bob Moses in right. 1961, working on voter registration. So a friend girl of mine came and told me that Dr. Martin Luther King and some other big folks was in Macomb, you know, right. having meetings with people. She told me where it was being held and all that. So I snatched up my best three buddies and told them, so look, man, so Dr. Martin Luther King is out here in town having meetings with folks, so let's go meet with him. 
see what he got to say, see what he's talking about. So I snatched up my three best friends and we went on out to Macomb looking for Martin Luther King. And when we got to where she had told us Martin Luther King was, I found Bob Moses. Mm -hmm. When I walked up, I didn't know who he was. So I walked up and asked him, look man, say you Martin Luther King? And he <laughs> said, no I'm not. He said, you know, in his little so I'm Bob. Bob who? Bob Moses. So I asked him, well, what are you doing here? I'm looking for Dr. King. So he explained to me that he was there working on voter registration, and I asked him what all was involved. So he explained all of that process to me and asked us how I would be interested in joining up with him. And I told him, yeah. So that's what I did, began to work with Bob and getting people to come out to the office where he was teaching them how to fill out the voter registration forms in order to become registered voters and just kept on keeping on. So as you were saying this morning, every historical moment is preceded by a different historical moment and, and we can all go seriously back to the early slave rebellions. But what was unique about 1964? There is a time in history when history just gets accelerated at such a rapid rate. So we had the voter registration, the killing of Mickey Schwerner and Goodman and Cheney. I just realized the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party fight, all in a four month period. What was it like for you? What, was, what role were you playing at that moment? Being a stick person, I was involved in all aspects of that. Trying to motivate, inspire, and push the further development of the Freedom Democratic Party, trying to continue to make sure that we continue to register people to vote, uh, preparing for the 1964 summer project, which uh, was coming into Mississippi, knowing that we're bringing people into Mississippi that has not been here before, so therefore you're going to have to be responsible for them. You know, as a young person at that particular time, I think I was sent 23 or 24 different volunteers. Here you are responsible, as I saw, for the lives of 23 people who've never been to Mississippi that know nothing about Mississippi, right. which is a daunting task. So that's what I had to prepare for. That's why I set up certain ground rules in order to work in the, in the Holmes County. And you're working on all of these different fronts at the same time, because you're constantly trying to develop relationships and building a movement to develop a relationship. What was your relationship with Fannie Lou Hamer at that time? I was one of the ones, I guess you could say, that helped to invite Fannie Lou Hamer into the movement, because Amza Moore was the one that told us, said, I got a lady I need y'all to meet. And this man is a hammer, you know, and if you can get her, you got a good one. He carried us to where she was involved in a singing program, introduced us on the break, and then we were invited to stay to the end of the program and could come by her house and talk with her further as a part of that. So that's what we did. I was one of those that went and talked with her from the onset and she agreed to be involved and that's how I first got a chance to, 
to me and no family. Well, that's a pretty great way to start, right? You can modestly say you helped to recruit Fannie Lou Hamer, and that's amazing in itself, both being yourself and Fannie Lou Hamer. I was deeply influenced by her, which I'll tell you in a minute, because I want to get to Atlantic City. She talked to us afterwards about Atlantic City, but tell us about the Atlantic City experience. Were you in the debates about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, the so-called compromise that the Democrats offered? I was a part of that debate. For the most part, I did a little debating and put forth my ideas and my suggestions. But I've always been one who, when you got some folks that's winning the fight, don't you take them out in order for you to get in. You be ready to jump in if it look as if they're getting tired and may not be throwing the blows that they would needed to be throwing. So I was there, did a little bit of talking as a part of that, but from all indications to me, Fannie Lou Hammer and a few of the other folks, they got this thing covered. They're not gonna give an inch, not willing to back up, and not willing to accept anything that was jive, which we thought the compromise was jive. Well, I think one of the reasons the compromise was jive for our listeners is, as Fannie Lou Hamer explained to us in Newark, about, uh, in Newark, New Jersey, about four months later, is she said, well, the Democrats came to us, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Walter Ruther, Bayard Rustin, and started pressuring us and telling us that we, if we wanted to defeat Goldwater, if we wanted to get Hubert Humphrey to be vice president, we have to take the compromise where we will get, we being the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, two at-large seats with no votes, and they will seat the white, all lily white Democrats. So she said to us, remember two things. Compromise is not a bad word, as long as you know that one side wins the compromise and the other side loses. So if you get a winning compromise, you can use the word compromise. But there was no compromise there. It was a pure defeat. Second thing she said is, if you negotiate, you better be able to go home and look at people in the eye who you represented and said, I fought tooth and nail for you. That's right. I got you everything I could. You may not agree with it, but this is truly the best that was historically possible. And she said, I was no way was I going back to Mississippi with that deal. And she had said those very words as a part of the quote-unquote debate right. over whether we do that. She said to us, look, I got to go back home to my people in Mississippi. I cannot go even myself with a straight face and tell them I did and accepted what is being offered. And she just let it be known, no way, no way. And we backed that position. No way. We'd rather go back and tell this is where the folks are. They caved in on us, didn't stand with their commitment. So we don't have anything as a part of this process. Well, let me ask you this. Um, in that Aaron Henry and Ed King did accept that compromise, what was the relationship like after that? Well, see, after that whole thing, you had an agreement where people decided that they're going to straighten out the Democratic Party and instead of that, we're going to create the lawless Democrats, you know, and it was going to do certain things. So this other organization did come in to being where Aaron and another guy from Quitman County became co-chairs 
of the lawless Democrats. And the lawless accepted and promoted most of the things that we were pushing and fighting for as a part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And that ultimately led to the complete deterioration of the Mississippi Democrat Party as a statewide organization. They start accepting and saying there's no need for us since the lawless is doing this. And one by one, began to fall off. So the issue throughout history of co-optation has been a tremendous problem of social movements, which is the social movement pushes the boundary, the system says no, but then realizes, well, perhaps a few people and a few compromises and holding your team together after that. Did you move in the direction of either, you know, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization politics? What direction did you take after the MFDP non-compromise in 1964? What happened to you? Well, staying here in Mississippi, continuing to, to carry on the work, when I would talk to people, I would express my feeling and my opinion about that. And in most cases, people saw and understood that. And when they were told about the makeup of the Lawless Democratic Party, many of them would ask me, say, well, how are these white folks gonna be so much different from the other white folks? Just because they allow people to hold one or two positions don't mean that they right. have any power or no control of that. So I couldn't deny that. I couldn't attempt to argue for the other side to, well, I understand what you're saying and my position, you know, is the same as that. And I, I continue, you know, to do some mobilizing and some organizing folks to the best extent that I could. And at the same time, during that period of time, you also found not just the Freedom Democratic Party being dissolved, but also you found the strength and people involved in the national four major organizations begin to vanish and evacuate Mississippi. Did you stay? I've been here. I stayed. I'm still staying. They come, they go, and you stay. <laughs> they come, they go, and I stay. And, and part of my stand has to do with me understanding that the work that needed to be done back then still need to be done today. So there's much work that need to be done. So I hang around, do whatever I can, attempt to build organization or build people that will build organization that will carry on the work that need to be done. I heard you're working with Southern Echo, is that correct? Yeah, I'm the president and founder of Southern Echo. So I guess you are working with them then. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question then. I think that you should play a real role as a historian. I mean it, because Mumia Abu-Jamal was on my radio show, and we're talking about, he had, came up with the concept of menticide, where a whole new generation of black youth in particular have lost their history and are totally disoriented. And I think that the talk you gave today was so moving and I knew a lot of that. I've studied a lot of that, but then I didn't know a lot of that. It's infinitely knowable. And how much are you doing teaching of black history to young people today? It's growing. 
every year. Now some of it comes through doing it with organization and their, their staff and constituents. And more and more it's beginning to take place with uh, colleges and, and schools, high school. So it's continuously increasing. And that's one of the things that I have realized for a number of years is that being able to share and teach people about that history. It's just like the young people that sang with me this morning. I saw it. You know, the young lady that started that group, I've been working with her ever since she was 13. And see, now she's a grandma. Wow. <laughs> My last question is, what do you think is the greatest contribution of the Obama administration? And what do you think is the greatest challenge to the Obama administration from the black community? The greatest contribution for the black community coming from, from him being elected is just that. Right. Him being elected, proving and showing that a black person can become elected. How and what they have to do and all of that kind of thing. That's a whole other <laughs> right. different right. monster. But at least he proves that black person can get elected, you know, because the old myth and everything said a black person could never be That's elected right. president, blah, 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 one of those things. So that is his greatest contribution. Um, the greatest challenge coming from the black community as far as I see it, is black people look at in most of his conversations, his talks, his speeches, and all of that, is he never, for the most part, he don't talk about us. That's right. Don't talk about us. And he don't talk about a class of folks that some of us is, is a part of, you know, is a pool. That's right. He talk about somebody else. And the biggest challenge is how can you continue to support someone that's not espousing to that which you need, that which you about. And that makes it very, very difficult to, to black people and they ultimately have to revert back to a position that we shouldn't have to revert back to. And that is to accept the lesser of two evils. We know what these are gonna do. We don't know what this one is gonna do. He might. So it's in our best interest to go with might rather than going with the one that we know is not going to do this or not going either way and leave it up to chance that the lesser of two evils will win. But in many instances, the lesser of two evils end up not winning. So you have the worst case scenario. Well, I think if Andrew Hamer was here and Harold Watkins, who is here, I think we are saying that there's still a need for an independent black politics, an independent black politics that's going to reach out to all other classes and races, and it's going to have to be to the left of President Obama. Is that a fair assertion, or would you say it differently? I think that's a fair assertion, and that's that's how some of us are beginning to look at things at a local level. We haven't talked about it to a great extent 
you know, on a statewide level, but in local counties where we're working with different groups of people, saying, hey, look, you know, if we can't completely take over and run this thing that we're calling Democrat or whatever, then we're going to have to create another thing that is ours because if we're going to get the effect and the support and the help we need, we're going to have to be the one that's sitting at the helm of things. Well, I think getting another thing that is ours is a wonderful way to end this conversation, Hoss Watkins. Pleasure to be with. Come to Los Angeles. It's a real honor having you on Voices from the Frontline. So from Jackson, Mississippi, this is Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines. And it may be old, but it's still good. All power to the people. Well, I can listen to that. In fact, yesterday, Julian Lamb and Channing Martinez and I listened to it twice. I used it for a class of ourselves in terms of leadership development. I could stop this tape every minute and explain so many things this brilliant man is saying. Uh, we want to go to the phones, 818-985-5735, to get your response to what Hollis Watkins said and to get your response to the new 8 a.m. voices from the front lines, wake up and smell the revolution. Are you a previous listener who was with us at 3 o'clock and followed us to 8 or just woke up one morning and found us there? Are you a new listener who's uh, a normal 8 a.m. listener and is happy? We hope that you, that you're, we're here, 818-985-5735. Um, so if we want to hear from you, listeners, 818-985-5735, uh, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, oh, there's thousands of them. The first thing is he keeps talking about over the line and behind the line and going over the line. So his father says, stand up and say what you want to say, even if you're the only person saying it, which is amazing. Then, after the murder of Emmett Till, his father's saying, essentially, as a father of a black boy, be careful. Maybe it's time to stay inside that line. And then he says, I wanted to stay inside that line, but I realized that in order to change history, I had to walk over the line. Now, that line at every point they were talking about was segregation. And you stepped one foot over that line and your life was in danger from the white power structure. Today, if a young black person walks over that line, it's the policeman most likely who will kill him and will kill him for anything, anything. So... Everything that was discussed in Mississippi, whether it was Frederick Douglass, you know, 100 years ago, uh, or Hollis Watkins eight years ago, talking about something that happened in 1964, the oppression of black people, the murdering of black people continues. And the Strategy Center, my organization, is fighting everywhere we can in South Central to deal with every element of anti-blackness in a white settler state. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is that it was interesting because I felt like the chemistry between the two of us was rather amazing, if you heard it, that almost anything I would say quietly is, do you think this is right? He would just pick it right up and say, yeah. I, I don't know if you caught, he said, well, what's the best thing about President Obama? He got elected. Well, what else? He got elected, uh, but he does not talk about us, black people. 
because Obama, as a black president, did not want to talk about black people. He wanted to discuss post-racialism as a way, because he was always trying to get the white vote. So the Democratic Party always wants the white vote and takes the black vote for granted. I could give you 20 other examples of what he's doing, but it was rather astounding. So now I want to go to uh, my friend Madonna. And, you know, I, I put on my headphones, my Beats by Dre, and I get on a treadmill or I jump around. I listen to music. I dream I'm up on the stage with people. Uh, so instead of just dreaming, I have my own radio show and uh, I get to sing with Madonna. And so do you. Because I'm sure a lot of you have been singing with uh, Jerry Butler for Your Precious Love and The Five Sounds. I don't know if we did The Still of the Night yet, but every week we'll have a song. Now, we have a song and dance element, Get Up and Dance. So this time we're going to combine them. We're going to have Madonna singing like a prayer, and you're going to get up and sing, and you're going to get up and dance. And I want to say again, for those of us, those of you, at times it's been me, who cannot get up, close your eyes and get up. Get up in any way you can. If you can barely get up physically, please get up. It'll help you. If you can't get up right now, you still can get up. So your imagination can take you anywhere you want to go, okay? So with that, let's listen to Madonna like a prayer. It's like a little prayer down on my knee. I wanna take you there in the midnight hour. I can feel your power, girl, like a prayer. You know I take you there in my name. It's like a little prayer I'm down on my knee. I wanna take you there in the midnight hour. I can feel your power, girl, like a prayer. I know you take you there Life is a mystery Everyone must say Love, I hear And it feels like home Just like a dream, you want what you see. Just like a prayer, no choice of us can take me there. I'll take you there. It's like a dream to me. Just like a prayer, I'll take you there. Get up and dance, move your knees, shake it, shake, do anything you want to do. You're in charge, you don't matter. Nobody cares. Jump up, 
do anything you want. Just dance, dance, dance. Just like a prayer, I'll take it in. It's like a dream to me. Just like, like a dream. Dance. Mystery, just like a dream, you are not what you see. Just like a prayer, no toss of us can take me there. Just like a prayer, no toss of us can take me there. Just like a news to me, you are a mystery. Just like a dream, you are not what you see. Just like a prayer, no toss of us can take me there. Okay, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you danced with us. Hope you sang along. Uh, so you can call me at 818-985-5735 if you want to talk. I'm in studio and love to hear from you. Um, so I'm going to go back and talk about a couple of things. Um, I want to keep going on the Hollis Watkins conversation because... You know, I study history all the time. I read history. I One of the things I say is you can't make history if you don't read history. But it, reading history in itself is kind of meaningless, even though it's so, I encourage you to do so. Because I say there's no such thing as history. There's only the struggle over historical interpretation, which means like somebody could read Frederick Douglass and say, that's why I want to work for Barack Obama. Or what? Or somebody could read uh, um, a story about the Black Panthers. That's overwhelmingly positive. And then you will have to have some facts that some Panthers did kill each other. You hear that? Some Panthers in a faction fight killed each other. Some Panthers start, uh, gave states evidence against each other. But the overwhelming majority of Panthers did not do that. The overwhelming majority of Panthers were heroes. The overwhelming majority of Panthers put their lives on the line and died for it. The Panthers, like Fred Hampton, got up at 6 in the morning and led calisthenics with young black children in freezing Chicago weather, if you've been there. The Panthers had breakfast for programs, breakfast for children programs. They had medical programs for the community. They were, there's a great book called Black Against Empire. The Panthers were the leading black group that supported the people of Vietnam. But then, what's the conclusion? I think the Panthers are a phenomenal model for our work today. Uh, but you think they were just berets and black jackets and raised fists, but the berets and black jackets and raised fists were the first military 
politically military response to all the killing of Emmett Till, all the killing of Medgar Evers, all the killing of uh, Malcolm X, the killing of Martin Luther King. Uh, everybody said, why don't black people fight back? Well, now they fought back aggressively, and they were in prison. Many Panthers today, my age, are still in prison for nothing that they did in the 60s and 70s except fight for their own people, 818-985-5735. So I've heard people say, well, I heard the Panthers mistreated women. Well, think about that, because what you're saying is the Panthers were men. But how about the women in the Panthers? There were so many of them, Frankie Adams Johnson and uh, Erica Huggins and Kathleen Cleaver, but I could tell you hundreds and hundreds and thousands of women were in the Black Panther Party. Have you really asked them what the experience was? For the vast majority of them, they said, I was treated great. I was promoted. Uh, I was offered leadership, mentorship. And you have to remember their lives were on the line. So there's no sense in reading history if you're looking for that one thing or those two things, which you will find to tell you why not to do what the challenge is to you. Because there's always something. I've been in the movement so long. I mean, I tell Channing and uh, I tell everybody, revolution without illusions, revolution without illusions. Uh, speaking of Channing, we're going to take him online too. Uh, Channing Martinez is my partner on everything. He's director organizing at the Strategy Center. And good morning, Channing. Thanks for waking up and smelling the revolution. Good morning. Thank you. This is, yeah, I, I'm usually <laughs> up this early, but not usually listening to anything. So this is great to be on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, as you said, we listened to the clip yesterday, and I thought it was great. I think, you know, one thing that folks don't understand is just the listening of history is so important because as, for all the young folks listening, we think that we know things, right? But one thing I've been reflecting on lately is we don't, we haven't seen revolution with our own eyes. And there are so many points to listen into that clip, like the fact that he retweeted Fannie Lou Hamer, like the fact that he went out and had to protect 24 people who had never been to Mississippi and the stakes were so high. There's so many things that we haven't experienced that we got to keep listening to, to continue to put into practice today for the movement. Um, there. And what's the biggest challenge when you listen to that? Uh, and it's also cool because, you know, we're in this room with Akuna Uka and uh, Julian Lamb, who did the interview with me, and you, Channing, and with Emily Zamora. And we're all sitting around listening to this. What was the biggest change you thought you wanted to make in your life after listening to it? Well, I think the biggest challenge is, do you want to be a warrior? Which is the conversation we were having yesterday. Right. I, I, I mean, and I mean that in the most literal sense. If you're a black person in this country that's still being followed around the store, because you're being followed around the store as an example, are you willing to go to war right then at that moment inside the store for them following you around the, around the store? When you walk into the store and black people are not being employed in the city and you see a restaurant that doesn't have black people even working there, 
are you willing to stop and go to war with them right now? And that is the biggest challenge for myself. I think it's the biggest challenge for a lot of folks. Yeah, you know, Channing, uh, you know, I learn, I listen. You know, I wear hoodies all the time. And I said to you, hey, I got a good hoodie. You said, I do not want to wear a hoodie. Um, You know, because for a black man wearing a hoodie, the police see that as, uh, you know, I won't say a red flag because that's communism, but you know what I mean, that you're in danger. So it's hard, you know, that's what Hollis Watkins was trying to say. You're in danger. So when you walk over that line, you're going to be in greater danger, and that is the question, right, Is which is hard. And I think you are a really good warrior, and we're all trying to be better. Uh, I want to get to my other friend, Nancy in Brentwood. Uh, Nancy, you follow me wherever I go, and I know you well and love to hear your voice. Nancy in Brentwood on line one. Hello? Hi, Nancy. Good morning. Hi. Yeah, I know. I was hoping some other people would call before me and before Channing, who are just the general listeners. But, hey, you were asking about the change in programming, and I do find uh, some great – Sly's got back on again. He he used to have a program back in the 80s and 90s, terrific program. And some other new programmers are on, and and, and I really do do enjoy the change. The only difficult part was democracy now being at – I try to get up at six to hear that, but beyond that, I, I, the timing is good. I, I can hear you your full program too. So uh, uh, hands up to that. And it's so important that we get young people, a new generation of people, a new generation of revolutionaries. And I see you're doing that, and Channing's doing that. He's one of the younger people coming up, and other people that I see, and I really enjoyed the drum circle and everything that you were doing out there, too. And also the program you had today was a very good historical account of how these movements formed and how the Freedom Democratic Party, you know, how they, the, the, you know, the, you have, how, how these movements sometimes get destroyed and co-opted, too. These are important to learn from. Thanks, Nancy. So, that's very, Nancy, that's very nice. We only got two minutes left, and I want to tie up, but... Just one thing to your listeners that I'm concerned about, I want to tell you, is that if I'm getting up and doing the show and the two people call are two of my closest friends and allies. Nancy's amazing. Uh, she's been in the movement for so long and one of the most dedicated jobs, you know, talk about, you know, the white people like us who are really on the side of black and Latino people, on the side of the third world. Nancy, you're, you're an inspiration to a lot of people. So in our, Gary, how many minutes we got left? Two. So what am I doing two minutes? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you about a great TV show you, you should watch called uh, The Bureau. It's, about a, it's a French uh, film. It's on Netflix, I believe, or Amazon. And you'll find it. The reason I love it is it's about the French CIA and... It shows a lot about what the counterintelligence does, and because it presents them in such a human form, enough, you know, in a, what do you call it, in a, a positive light, you could say, attractive characters, you even begin to identify with them. But over time, the film does show 
that they all become deteriorated because they're essentially murderers and cheaters and liars. They should run for the U.S. Congress. They'd be perfectly suited there. But it's a great show about strategy and tactics and consciousness. And for those of us who want to take on the system, you better check out how they train the French CIA and the U.S. CIA. Are you strong enough to stand up to them? I think I am. I've done it my whole life, but I, I watch them because they set the standard. You watch your enemy and ask yourself honestly, am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Am I dedicated enough to take them on? And Hollis Watkins did. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye. And we're going to go out with Nina Simone, who does it my way. And Gary Bakker, thank you very much for being here and seeing you in person. Uh, and you asked me if I sang. Well, I didn't sing so great today, but I was okay. And the main point is Madonna, I think she's got a lot, she's got a lot of future. If you live, she's, got, she's an up-and-comer. She'll make it. See you next week. And so I got to face the final curtain. Friends, I'll say it clear and state my case of witchers. And now the end is near, and so I 